Well, if you will, open your Bibles with me to the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 2. Remember, a couple weeks ago, I gave you a little bit of a hint on how to find the minor prophet of Zechariah. If you're having difficulties doing that, if you'll start at the first Gospel, Matthew, and move backwards. It's much easier to find it that way, Matthew, Malachi, Zechariah. And here in Zechariah chapter 2, we've been looking at these visions for the past number of weeks that Zechariah is having. And in chapter 1, he has two that's before us. And it's a very encouraging, it's a very uplifting message that he gives to the people of God through these visions that he's having in the midst of the night. In the first vision, he promises a restored presence of the Almighty God with the people. He says, because of the sins of your fathers, I have removed you from my presence. And yet now as I am restoring Jerusalem, as I am bringing you back into the land of promise, my presence will be with you. And then the second vision preached a message, proclaimed a message that God will not allow our enemies to be victorious over us. But in fact, in His judgment, He will one day and one day soon eradicate sin, the devil, and all of His enemies from the new heavens and the new earth so that we might dwell peacefully and blissfully with Him for all eternity. And before we even read chapter 2, we have to understand how uplifting these two visions were for the people of God. Remember, they have been in Babylon in captivity. God had given them over to their enemies because of their sins and their unbelief. And so they had been first under the wicked ruler of Nebuchadnezzar. And now they are under the wicked, yet a little bit more gracious than Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, the king of Medes, who has allowed the people of God to begin returning to Jerusalem. And yet, in his wickedness, he still wants to hold them a little bit at arm's length. So Jerusalem, though it's being reestablished, though the people of God are uh, told that they may return there, they are just a, a puny little kind of community within the kingdom of Medo-Persia. They are still under the rule of Darius, and so they have this political oppression that's above them. They have pagan rulers surrounding them. They have the oppression from the inside of their own hearts because what has happened? They've returned to Jerusalem. The city has been ruined. The, the, the foundations have been built at this point, and yet they are weary and they're tired of laboring already. They, they're, they're weary and they're tired from even being or, or, or having to build with one hand and keep their swords in the other, as Nehemiah chapter 4 says, because... The oppression is not only coming from the political government, but it's also coming from the pagan nations that surround them. And so they're engaged in spiritual warfare. They're engaged in physical warfare with the nations. They're engaged in political warfare. And, and, and now, as God has promised victory, as God has promised that Jerusalem will be rebuilt and His presence will be there again... They're now rushing back to work, it seems. And that's where this second vision comes into play, this vision of a man with a measuring line. And so we're going to handle this whole chapter, all 13 verses in this entirety. It's one big vision that Zechariah sees. 
and then we'll expound it together before we come to the Lord's table. So people of God, as the Spirit gives us understanding, hear this. The prophet writes, And I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And then I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him, and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. For I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. For thus said the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Behold, I will shake my hand over them, and they shall become plunder for those who serve them. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God for it. Well, this isn't the first time in the book of Zechariah that we have seen this measuring line. Remember all the way back up in verse 16, in the first vision of chapter 1, we have this measuring line being stretched out over Jerusalem. This first vision, again, is the vision where Jesus himself is standing in the middle of the myrtle trees, representing this restored Garden of Eden experience where we now, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, ultimately, are able to commune with Jesus again, be in His presence, away from His separation, away from His judgment. And in that first vision, He tells us that He has again returned to Jerusalem with mercy. And even in verse 16, He says, My house shall be built in Jerusalem, declares the Lord, and a measuring line shall be stretched out over the city. Well, in the second vision that we see here, we see this measuring line indeed being stretched out amongst the city. And in the first five verses, there really is a correction, if you will, of our understanding, of our human understanding of what the Lord Jesus is doing here in the midst of this city. Well, as we look at verses 1 through 5, we need God to correct our perceptions, one commentator says, because here we are introduced to this young man. These two angels are still before Zechariah. One is an angel of the Lord, a messenger, and the other is Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. 
the angel of the Lord that's mentioned here in the myrtle trees. Even Jesus begins to speak in the first person later on in this vision where he uses ah. The Father, the glory will send me to do a number of things that we'll handle here in just a few moments. But we have an angel who's interpreting the visions for Zechariah. We have Jesus in this vision in his pre-incarnate state talking with Zechariah. And we have this young boy running with the measuring line, you see, going to find out what exactly is the width and the length of Jerusalem. So the picture here is that God's presence and God's promised destruction over the enemies has set a fire to the labors of Jerusalem's people. These sojourners who have returned to the promised uh, city, they have come and they were weary, they were heavy laden, they were tired of the work that they were doing. But now that the Lord has promised His presence to be with them, a fire has been set within their souls and they, they're, they're exclaiming to one another, we've got to get back to work. The Lord has promised that the temple will be here. The Lord has promised that He will dwell in the temple representing His presence here amongst the people. We must give to the Lord what He desires. And so the young boy runs with his measuring stick, the running meaning this fire within his souls, the, the hurriedness of wanting to get back to work. And it's the angel of the Lord, Jesus Himself, who then goes to the interpreting angel right in front of the prophet Zechariah. And He says, you need to hurry up and go get Him. And and what's before us here is is that the young boy, in this vision, many commentators say that he's a representation of the whole kingdom of Judah a representation of all these people who are hurrying to get back to work, to get back to their labors, to build the temple and the city. They're saying you need to, what we might say, pump the brakes a little bit. What the Lord's doing here within Jerusalem is much bigger than a physical temple. Much bigger than a physical wall. Much much bigger than a, a physical city. He's actually establishing... For you a kingdom that knows no bounds. And so the angel is is, is sent to go catch this young boy with the measuring line to tell him that his human understanding of what God is doing is falling way short of what God is actually going to do. And isn't that often the way in which our minds work? We rely on our human intuition. We rely on our human wisdom or or capabilities of comprehension even. And we try to put God and His work within some sort of box that we can understand. But we must understand what the Scriptures say. That His ways are not our ways. And His means are much higher than our means. And His understanding is unlike our understanding. God is always working in ways that's far beyond what we can ask or imagine. Isn't that the beauty of Ephesians chapter 4 when he's speaking of this church that has a unity amongst itself, Jews and Greeks alike, representing all the nations of the world coming into the visible church of Christ. He says, to God be glory in the church through Christ Jesus who can do far more than all that we can ask or think or can imagine. And so with eagerness, this young boy, 
He runs to go begin to discover how big this temple is going to be and how grand Jerusalem and its walls are going to be. And yet the angel is sent by Christ Himself and saying, you're getting it all wrong. We're not talking about human comprehension here. We're not talking about human understanding or even your wisdom. You must understand that the Lord wants to see His promises concerning His people much larger than Jerusalem. Much larger than the nation of Judah. But He wants to establish a kingdom from all peoples, tribes, and tongues that passes all conventional understanding and expectations. See, what Jesus is trying to say here is that the glories of the new Jerusalem are going to be far more than what we can, that we, that we, what we can measure with a measuring line. He's doing far more than what we can even, with our human understanding, comprehend. And He tells us something about this, doesn't He? In verses 4 and 5, He tells us two very important things about this new Jerusalem, this new Zion in which He is establishing. The first thing He says that it won't have walls, physical walls, because there's going to be so many people in it and livestock in it. He's saying that, that the multitude of people is going to be so vast that, that a defensible wall, a defensible stone wall would be impossible to set up. But this new Jerusalem, this kingdom of God, will embrace citizens from all over, all over the globe. Within this company of God's people, there will be no Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, circumcised nor uncircumcised, slave nor free, for Christ will be all in all, it says. And that's why it says in verse 5 that this populous city will be guarded by a wall of fire, which will be the glory of the Lord in the very midst of His people. And so not only will this be a vastly inhabited city, a populous city, but it will also be a secure city because it relies not on human comprehension, not on human walls, but walls that are built by the Lord Himself. Walls that are supernatural even in in nature. And, And so what... What the vision is showing us here is is this city in which God is establishing, this nation in which God is recreating, cannot be measured by any sort of wisdom, no no sort of earthly growth models, or even, even, even any sort of human version or definition of success. What the Lord's doing is far beyond us. You know, Dr. Rick Phillips, who preaches at Second Presbyterian Church here in Greenville, South Carolina, he says that oftentimes the church relies on the ABCs of church growth. And the ABCs of church growth are attendance, buildings, and cash. And he says, well, you know, we have to have cash to do ministry. We have to have people, worshipers in God's house. And we have to have buildings to, to do ministry, to, to impact our people and, our, and, and the nations through us as a local church. So he's saying these things aren't inherently wrong, attendance, buildings, and cash. 
But we cannot measure the church's strength or the church's vitality or the church's health upon those ABCs. And that's what he's saying to the nation of Jerusalem. He's saying you can't gauge your standing with the Lord on how big the temple's going to be or how vast the, the city of Jerusalem is going to be or how strong the walls surrounding the city is going to be. No, the reason that you're going to have strength The reason you're going to have a multitude of people and you're going to be secure is because the Lord Himself is going to dwell in the midst of them. And that's what the true mark of church health and church vitality is when when the presence of the glory of God dwells amongst us. Again, it's not wrong to pray for a church full. It's not wrong to to have nice buildings to worship in and to meet in and do ministry in. Those things are necessary. Cash is necessary for the work of the church to progress. But the real mark of the true church, a mark of a healthy church, is the glory of God dwelling amongst the people there. And so as he paints this glorious picture of of a new Jerusalem, a, a new Zion that's far beyond our human understanding, he then in verses 6 through 9 calls us to leave Babylon to come to this new city. Look at verses 6 through 9 again. Up, up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have spread you abroad as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Up, escape to Zion, you who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. Now, of course, historically... In the historical context, this is really a call within this vision for those who are God's people who stayed in Babylon. We, we know, don't we, through the dispersion of God's people uh, in, the midst of, in the midst of God's judgment against them and the nations overthrowing them, that there are people even now that as Darius, the king of the Medes, has allowed them to return, they're going, you know what, I kind of like it in Babylon. It's not that bad here. I think I'll just stay. I think I'll stay and I'll live in this pagan country and, and I'll be at ease with the pagans around me. And, and, and you know what? They're, they're doing a good thing here in Medo-Persia. They've got a good thing going. I don't want to go back to Jerusalem to labor, to advance the city of God. I'm going to stay right here. And, and one of the things that you have to understand is as these people of God decide to stay in Babylon. They're doing the very thing that the Tower of Babel in Genesis is doing. You know what? We can actually be a part of something even greater than the city of God. We can do something beyond what even God is promising to do. You know, in Genesis 11, when they begin to build the Tower of Babel, this is on the heels of of God creating the heavens and the earth destroying the earth through the flood, reestablishing the earth after the flood, building for Himself a kingdom of of believers, of worshipers. And they're going, you know what? God's just not doing it exactly the way I want to do it. And so we're going to go over here and we're going to be our own God and we're going to build our own city and we can make ourselves parallel to His glory, His strength, His influence. The very same sins in which Adam and Eve fell into there in Genesis 3. They do it again in Genesis 11. 
And the people of God who are staying in Babylon here in Zechariah 2 are doing it yet again. But we know the story in Revelation 18. That God's establishing for Himself a people from Genesis to Revelation. And there are people who are establishing a kingdom against His from Genesis to Revelation. And in Revelation, the the promises of the second vision in chapter 1 are coming true. God's people are victorious. And in Revelation 18, we're told that the hostility of God is going to pass in judgment against Babylon, against those who have set themselves up against the Lord and His commands and His people. And so here in the midst of this third vision in the book of Zechariah, there's this glory of heaven, of new Zion, of new Jerusalem, this new heaven, this new earth that's being established by God Himself. Being shown to us in verses 1-5. through And then in verses 6-9, through there's an invitation. Flee from the world and come to Christ. Flee from the world and come to Christ. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that outside of the church, outside of the people of God, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. What's being established here in verses 1-5 through is the New Testament church, which will see its consummation at the end of time in glory in New Zion. And the message of the second, the message of the second vision of Zechariah in chapter 1 is the message that we're hearing repeated here in verses 6-9. through You do not want to be found on the wrong side of history when the judgment of the Lord comes. You cannot be more in danger than to be outside of the church. That is verses 6-9. through But the glories of that, the equally true statement behind that is that you cannot be more secure and at home within the people of God, within the church. And so there's this invitation, flee from the world and come to Christ. Be a part of Zion. And Zion is, as we see in verses 8-9, through the apple of God's eye. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after 8, after His glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, actually think that glory there in verse 8 should be capitalized. Because we have Jesus Himself talking, right? Who is the glory that is sending Christ? Well, we know that it's the Father who sends Christ. So glory should be capitalized in my opinion, but that's above my pray grade. The ESV translators didn't ask me. Glory. The glory sent me to save my people and to plunder the nations who stand against me. Why does he do such a thing? Because they have, what he literally says, they have poked me in the eye. They they have reached out and they have threatened the church who is the apple of my eye. They have poked me in the eye and they have brought forth my wrath and judgment against them. How glorious is it? Now, it's a glorious gospel, right? That we have been saved in Jesus Christ and all of our enemies will be put underfoot in Jesus Christ. That's a glory. That's a glorious gospel. But think about this. The God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, calls you, First Presbyterian Church, the apple of His eye. That's a glorious statement. That 
that in the center focus of the Almighty God Himself is you, the church of Christ. And for you, He sent redemption through Jesus. And for you, He will plunder the nations. For you, He is creating a new Jerusalem, the city of God. And for you, He will destroy your enemies. Have you ever thought of the mercy of the Lord to make sure that there are no sin nor sinners in the new heavens and the new earth? Have you ever thought about the graciousness it is for Him to destroy and put underfoot Satan and sin and death? It's a graciousness from our God that He would destroy Babylon. Because the temptation is for us to look at Babylon and say, they have a good thing going there. And living like a Christian is sometimes hard. Sometimes brings about oppression. Sometimes brings about rejection. And the temptation is to rebel against the claims of King Jesus, that He is doing something far more than we can imagine. We say, like those who are building Babel, I can see that. I can see the glory of that. And I want to be in that. And Jesus is saying, but you, my friend, I'm doing something so much better for you and you can rely on it because you are the center of my gaze. You are the reason in which Christ comes incarnate. You are the reason in which God in Christ humbles Himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you are a Christian and Jesus is your Savior, He's saying to you here, you are the apple of the Almighty God's eye. And therefore, you can trust His promises that He is building for you a dwelling that is far beyond your human understanding. And He holds you secure in the palm of His hand. There is so much positives to be met when we understand the Gospel rightly. That you are the apple of His eye. And how do we respond to something like that? Well, the response is actually for us here. In verses 10 through 13. There's two responses. And this leads us right into the Lord's Supper. The two responses here is praise and silence. Well, Matt, how can it be both? How can we praise and be silent? And, and I think it's actually, I think it actually can be summarized by this. You rejoice and you tremble. You, you celebrate and you quake. You sing and you stand in silent wonder and holy awe. It, it entices both responses. It makes us sing and also it takes our breath away. And that's the reality of the glory of the gospel. It inspires our praise. It makes us worship. But at the same time, you say along with the Apostle Paul, Oh, wretched man that I am. Who's going to save me from this death? Well, praise God that we stand in Jesus Christ and now there is no more condemnation for those who belong to Him. And so how are you supposed to come to the Lord's table? How are you supposed to come to the Lord's table? You're supposed to come with a great reverence and all, right? You're supposed to come with this holy quake or tremble. 
You're supposed to come in silent wonder to think, why would the God who created the heavens and the earth take on the form of a servant and even face death upon the cross where His body broken, blood shed for sinners unworthy like me? It's mind-blowing. It should cause you just to sit and it should take your breath away. But also it should cause your heart to sing. It should cause your heart to sing, saying, praise God from whom all blessings flow. The greatest blessing, of course, being Jesus Christ our Lord, that now there is no condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in Him is mine. My living head. He's died for me, yes, but He is also preparing a place for me where I can rejoice and stand in awe with my breath taken away forever. Won't that be a glorious day when we sit around the marriage supper of the Lamb and our first response will be, my, what a spread. And then our second response will be, let me just sit here and take it all in. Because there is my Jesus at the head of the table. The bridegroom is ready for His bride. Even now we might say that He is on His way longing to be in our presence and us longing to be in His And thank God through the Spirit, we get to be in His presence each and every time we come in Lord's Day worship, but especially when the Word is preached. And especially as we come to commune with Him at the table. John Calvin says that there is a great mystery, a profound mystery that happens every time we take the Lord's Supper. Somehow, some way, the Spirit of God calls us up into the heavenly places where we get to actually feast with Him because He is spiritually present. So that makes this table not the table of First Presbyterian Church nor the table of the Presbyterian Church in America. This is the Lord's table. And so if you have come to Christ in faith and repentance, this table is for you. You come and taste and see that the Lord is good. His mercy is never ending. His love is never failing. You take and you feast upon Christ as the Gospel is visually and sensibly given to you in the bread and the cup. But there is a fence around this table, of course. The fence around this table says that no one who does not profess faith in Christ cannot come, for this is the Lord's table. Those who are apart from Him, those who have chosen Babylon over New Zion, they are not able to come and to partake. And so the elders of this church ask that you, if you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, the king of your life, do not take this bread and this cup. Because the Apostle Paul tells us that if you take of this bread and this cup in an unworthy manner, you are drinking judgment upon your own soul. And so come with reverence, come with awe, but come rightly knowing that only through Christ are you made worthy to come. And if you're harboring sin within your own heart, if you're harboring sin in your own heart and you cannot shake the sin... In fact, you love the sin that you commit and you have not repented of that sin, please do not come. You are drinking and eating in an unworthy manner. But take this time to come to Christ knowing that as we repent of our sins and confess them before an almighty God, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if you come to the cross of Calvary and saying, all of my sin, past, present, and future, All of my sin has been washed as white in the blood of the Lamb. All my sin is covered by Jesus' sacrificial death. You come and you eat.
and you feast and you be reminded of the Lord Jesus' death and resurrection and His ascension to glory that He is preparing for us even now as we commune with Him. If the elders would come while I pray. Father in heaven, we do thank You for the opportunity to come to this, Your table. And we pray, Lord, that we would come knowing that Christ allows us to come. Knowing that we come only through Him, that as His blood is shed for us, His blood washes us as white as snow. And so, Lord, God Almighty, would we come repenting of our sins, being assured of our pardon? Would we come ready to eat and drink of the body and blood of Christ, knowing, Lord, that this causes us to long for the day that we will eat not just one simple and little piece of bread, but that we will drink and we will eat and we will feast for all eternity in Your presence. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.